Hello, welcome to the Weekly Brief, brought to you by The Daily Journal. I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal. And today our guest is Ralph Baxter. And it's no overstatement to say that Ralph Baxter is one of the leaders in thought and management in the legal profession. He served as chairman and CEO of the firm for many years known as Laura Carrington and Sutcliffe, now simply as Auric. He led the firm as it expanded It was a domestic firm with California origins when he began its management. Under his management, it went global, became one of the most prominent global law firms, more than 1,100 lawyers, 25 offices across the United States, Europe, and Asia. Ralph has been recognized by every legal organization for his management skill in leading that effort. The American lawyer made him one of the top 50 big law innovators of the last 50 years. And Law 360 said that Ralph has left an indelible mark, not only on Oric, but also the larger legal practice. Since he left Oric in 2014, Ralph has taken his skills to a different level, but within the same area. He is now one of the leading commentators and people who are consulted on changes in law practice. Overall law practice and the challenges law practice now faces. He has done it in the academic world and he's done it in the management world as well. Among other things, he is a senior advisor and member of the advisory board, the center of the legal profession at Stanford Law School, as well as on the Stanford Center for Legal Informatics. He's a member of the advisory board on the legal profession at Harvard Law School, and I could go on for a long time. In in coming back to Stanford on the advisory boards, Ralph returns to part of his roots. His bachelor's degree is from Stanford in history, law degree from the University of Virginia. He has a master's degree in education from Catholic University and remarkably taught in elementary school in Washington, D.C. before entering the legal profession. And we've asked Ralph to be a guest and we'll talk to him today about the current challenges to the legal profession in terms of its organization and ethics, what we've seen in Arizona and Utah, and issues that are now before the State Bar of California as well. Ralph, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. Well, it's my pleasure, Howard, and thank you for that uh, very detailed and and, uh, flattering introduction. Thank you. You are very well known in your work in advising on the legal profession for saying that the legal system is broken. I mean, with that word in quotes, you use that word, that the system is broken. What do you mean when you say the system is broken? Well, first of all, most recently I said that in response to someone who'd written an editorial opposing uh, modernization of the rules that govern law practice by saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And so we began the editorial response to that. Uh, Zach DiMiola from from the aisles and I by saying, well, it is broken and it's in dire need of, of fixing. The place to start on this subject is the role of law in our society, in, in America and, and really around the world. It, law defines all of our rights and obligations, all of us as individuals and, and as participants in this society. It's law that enables a just society. It's law that enables commerce. It enables pretty much everything that we, we hold dear to us is enabled by law. It's not the law that we hold dear. It's the, it's the lives we want to lead, the businesses we want to conduct, and the other things we want to do. 
and, and, the, and the role of law has always been something to be admired. That's why I became a lawyer, and, and, and it was a good decision. Law is um, a noble profession. Law does help people do what they want to do uh, and, and deal with challenges they face. But over time, as law has become more and more a part of the lives of every human being, certainly in the United States, more and more a part of what you have to navigate to just do the simplest of businesses or anything else, law has not kept up. And, and in part, law kept up in terms of what is necessary to deliver to the people who need legal advice what they need and to create the careers, as we'll talk about, that people once aspired to. It used to be people couldn't, law was one of the things people most wanted to become in life. I want to grow up and be a lawyer. That's less so now. And people who become employed in law are less commonly happy about that and, and feel rewarded by that. They make money, but, but they don't have the kinds of rewarding careers they once had. Well, let me focus this, Ralph, if I can, on one particular thing of what you're talking about, because implicit in the importance of law and our values of the legal profession, I think and we broadly state that it's important that everyone have legal representation, especially for critical matters in their life, as well as having a system uh, that produces fair and efficient results. But representation is at the key. I mean, if people don't have representation for whatever reason, essentially there is no law as applies to them. If they go to court by themselves and they're in a family law court or another court, there's no representation, don't know what's going on. It's as though the law didn't exist. So, and so much of what you've spoken about has talked about that failure of widespread representation. Has, has there been a breakdown in people being, is there a breakdown in people? Well, there is, there, there is. But the reason I began with what I began with, it isn't, as all these things are interrelated, and it isn't as simple as, yes, and I want to take that up. I want to talk about the question you're asking me, but, but it isn't as simple as that standing alone. That isn't the, the beginning and end of the problem. The problem is much bigger than that, and, and then we can zero in on and, and as, as participants and in this podcast and, and address some of them, but all of these things come together. So let's start with what you just asked me about. I don't know that people need representation necessarily. This is an important issue that, that shows up that, that'll be part of the discussion when we talk about what regulatory reforms might states undertake. It, it isn't always so that you need a representative. It isn't always so that you need a lawyer, but you need someone who knows about the, the legal issue and the process questions that are associated with it to help you navigate the law. That's what you need. So sometimes that is a lawyer. Sometimes it is to be represented. Sometimes it's just some coaching, just some advice. Somebody who's been there before knows enough and is trustworthy enough to help you get through it. But if you think about the legal system, it was, it was created, one thing for sure, created by lawyers, for lawyers, for courts to some extent. And it's, and, and it's, it's not readily understandable by someone who isn't educated or, or trained in, uh, in that experience. Uh, let's talk about some very specific areas where there may people have expressed concern about whether the profession is living up to its ideals. Talk about family law court. 
we know, for example, that at least 70%, some estimates put it as high as 80%, but at least 70% of all parties on both sides in a family law proceeding have no representation in court at all. They go in knowing what they know, but no real representation. Uh, and that is one of the most fundamental legal uh, issues, legal things that people will ever deal with in, in their lifetime, the family law proceeding, affecting their relationships, their children, if they have any finances. Is that That's one of the areas when people talk about things not working as they should. It's a critical area. How? What are the ways to deal with that? Well, to deal with that subject, we need to change the rules. I mean, actually, there's really two answers. But the main answer, the one that, that we can do something about collectively, is change the rules that limit who can help those people out and what kinds of businesses can be created to enable whoever wants to help them out to help them out. Right now, the rules are not only restrictive, not only do they restrict who can help them out, they prescribe the business model that you can have if you want to help them out. Well, why can't the current system, I mean, if we start that as a need, we can talk about family law, we can talk about eviction, we know about the huge, large, large number of people, not a small number, it's not as though 10 or 20% don't have advice or representation, it's in the 70, 80 and larger percentage. Why can't the current system, I mean, one of the things you're involved in legal services with the Legal Services Corporation, why can't the current system with the widespread growth of legal services and pro bono work, why can't the current system meet those needs. Well, pro bono will never meet these needs. So let, let's stay with the magnitude of the problem for a second. You know, I don't have at my fingertips uh, statistics state by state on every area of law. I do know this. The majority, maybe as high as 80% of people of moderate to, to lower income simply do not have access to the kind of legal service they need. It's, it's, the, it's the majority. Without a doubt, the majority don't have access. When you talk about that, I think it's an important uh, concept, and pardon me for interrupting it. What you said, lawyers have created the system, but it's not lawyers that are hurt by this. It, it's people, it's clients. The law exists to serve clients, and it's those people in their lives that are hurt by not having the representation. Right. That needs to be our, our main driver. As, as, as we, the people, think about what the rules ought to be, which we can do, and by the way, the rules that govern the practice of law are not decided by legislatures. They're not decided by the federal government. They're decided by state by state. And in the states, they're decided by the Supreme Courts of the states. So it's a, it's, it's a different kind of challenge, but it should be an easier challenge to address. But we, the people, if we're, we're deciding how this should work, the number one group who, who, who we should try to protect are the, the, the potential clients, the people, but it's everybody else. If you go to law school today and you, it's gonna cost you three years of your life to, to complete law school, it's going to cost you a lot of money. You're gonna end up with six figures of debt, most people, if you don't come from a well-to-do circumstance. And then you have trouble making a living because you, your overhead is so high and you can't find clients. And if you do find them, what you need to charge them to be able to make a living is more than they can afford to pay. And finding clients is a very hard thing. Clio, one of the uh, infrastructure 
legal technology companies, information technology companies that serve smaller and uh, law firms and sole practitioners. They've done research that the average lawyer in the small firms bills two and a half hours or less a day. And the reason for that is that how complicated it is to, to, to find clients and, and find clients who can afford to pay you and so on. At any rate, let's stay with the main problem of, of getting service to the people. Pro bono is not the answer. There's statistics on this. I don't have these at my fingertips either, but it's a, it's a monstrous number of hours of pro bono that would be required, far more than any law firm is going to be willing to do. Law firms commonly will do 50 hours per lawyer per year and, and feel good about it. But that, that is just the tip of the iceberg or a, a, a wholly inadequate solution to providing the legal service that people need. We need a system in which people can have careers serving people of moderate and low income. And people can have careers serving small businesses. And actually, I think more people who go to law school would like to do that than they would to get involved in some faceless corporation and, and things that, that are highly remunerative and quite interesting in creating law that affects you know, the big issues. But as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, if I can, you know, law school applications are up significantly this year mm -hmm. in terms of number of applications. Uh, there may be reasons for that uh, in terms of people's other options. Uh, there's some indication that a lot of it has to do with the motivation of why people are becoming lawyers. More people are become lawyers for the reason you're talking about, right. because they want to do good. They want to help people. Right. And so you're highlighting not only the issue of client representation, but unless we can develop a system where those clients can be represented on a reasonable basis in ways that provide financial support for lawyers, we're not only hurting the clients, the people who are now applying to law school and will be graduating in three and four and five years, various classes, are going to face some real disappointment. So we're talking about how do we develop a system that both provides the services and provides the income to the large number of lawyers who will have that income because they will be providing essential services. Everything you just said is right. And, and here's, here's just a fact. Of these law, lawyers that graduate every year, even some of them go into private practice and sole practitioner small firms and don't and have a hard time making money. But many of them think they're going to go work on a, in a big law firm or work in a big corporate legal department. And that's what their idea of success is. And there aren't enough of those jobs to go around. So they, that, that they fail at that. They can't get that to happen. Then they go to these other places. So fundamentally, what we need to address is that the to get at these different things that, that we are talking about. And there's, there's lots of other examples besides family law, any kind of financial hardship, bankruptcy, or how do you deal with your, your debts that exceed your resources? How do you deal with your citizenship if you didn't start in, in, in the United States? How do you deal with your leases? All, the, all those different, it, there, it comes up in everybody's life. I mean, that, this is a, a, a fact that it's, it's easy to express but it's got real implications here that law is in our lives every day. And people need help from before they have a problem, understanding what their rights and obligations are. Sometimes it would be good, but actually it would be good if, if we could create businesses you could go to in the way that you go to the doctor. You don't know if you're sick, you go to find out. Well, people don't do that with lawyers because it's too expensive and they wouldn't even know where to start. One day we need to get to, get to that place. But if, you, if we want to provide help to a person earning a moderate amount of money, 
who has moderate assets, then we have to permit businesses that have an economic uh, reality that enables them to deliver service at a, at a relatively low price. And that almost certainly requires some investment by someone else and not just the lawyers. But the rules in, in almost all states, not no longer Arizona, and we'll talk about Utah because Utah is a very special, the solution they came to is very special and very creative. But in most states, if, if you are not a lawyer, you cannot own uh, an interest in a law firm, which means not only can they not get investment other than, as you and I've talked about, they can borrow money, they can keep money from their partners if they, if they have partners and their partners have any money, um, but, but it, it means that the people who work in the firm, who think up the technology that would enable you to serve clients less expensively, that, that think up other new ideas, they can't have a stake in the enterprise. Imagine, imagine if Microsoft, when it was getting going, or Apple was getting going, couldn't have provided equity stock options to their employees. They didn't have any money to pay them, so they'd pay them a modest amount, if anything, but there was equity, and maybe if we're successful, you'll get a return from that equity. You can't do that in law. It, it, it's really, it's a big problem, especially, you know, one of the, one of the things that um, any new business has to do is market. You have to get the, the people who might want your services to know you are there, and in law, to trust you. And because the way the, the rules work in law, that's a singular uh, undertaking for every single lawyer. Howard Miller, lawyer, and you have to go out and find human beings who've never heard of you and get them to hear of you and get them to think about hiring you. That's a full-time job. In real businesses, you have a marketing department that does that. You have a sales department that does that. In law, you can't have that. Well, let's talk about, you know, the Arizona and Utah are the two examples. Now, Arizona has gone the furthest. It essentially has changed its rule of professional conduct so that non-lawyers can have equity ownership in firms. And it has provided for what we will separately talk about legal paraprofessionals. But let me talk first about the investment in law firms that you've raised. I mean, people say, you know, you know law firms now do have access to outside capital. We can't confuse access to capital with access to equity. Mm -hmm. But the only access to capital law firms have is debt capital. Mm -hmm. They are the only business, I think, that can only obtain capital through debt capital. And debt capital has its own risks. I mean, one of the and, and, and influences one of the largest, best known, oldest, most respected law firms in the United States was based in the Bay Area. And in the 2008 great crisis, because some of its partners left, it violated the loan covenants with its bank, and the loan would not renew the bank, and it would not renew the loan, and the firm had to dissolve. So the debt capital, and, and, this, and it's an important part of the discussion because people often go to what about issues of outside control. Existing debt capital in form of loans with covenants to establish or litigation finance in other areas imposes its own kind of controls. So what difference would it make? Arizona has said you can have uh, equity capital come in. U Utah is a little different approach and you said very imaginative. So talk to us about the Utah approach and how that works okay. in this area. Okay, so we'll start with Utah and then we can talk about this question of ownership and, and whether there is something really to worry about in, in letting people invest. <clears throat> so Utah, first of all, Utah is a great example of what's possible. Utah, the, the reforms were driven by the Supreme Court that saw the problem 
that you're describing of people not being represented, they saw it especially uh, in eviction cases, where I think the number is over 90% of, uh, in, uh, over 90% of the cases, somebody didn't have a lawyer at all. And this is worse than it sounds, because when, in those cases, the other somebody did. So there you are, the one person's advised and protected by a lawyer, and the other has nobody, nobody. And, and so the, the Supreme Court, working with the state bar, came to this conclusion. And I don't know why it is that in other states we can't have that same kind of collaboration. What's in the public interest? Let's see if we can't find a solution. Nobody likes the idea that 93% of those litigants didn't have uh, access to legal service. And they came to something called a sandbox, which has um, a term that has application in other uh, settings, but it means you people are permitted to experiment with other ways of delivering legal service. So these rules, which don't just pro prohibit uh, investment, they have lots of other restrictions on them. These rule the restrictions they impose on law firms, these rules say, we will suspend all of them. We're not going to worry just about the one of ownership. If you have a model that would not be permitted by the rules as they are, and you demonstrate to us, this is how the model works, you demonstrate to us that you can pursue that model with a reasonable degree of safety in terms of the interests of the people to be represented, then we will permit you to experiment for a limited amount of time. We will regulate you and monitor you carefully, mainly monitor you carefully during that time to see how it goes. And then after a period of time, if you have proven to us, the burden is on you, proven to us, and us be, is a special organization that Utah has created to, to do this. This led, and it happens, it, it, the state, president of the state bar is leading it. Then, then we will give you a license and you can continue with that model you have created. I think this is close to ideal. It, the whole thing is set up with an eye to protecting the public. You can't get a license just by asking for one or, or being effective in your expression. You have to demonstrate that you've got a model that looks to reasonable people and it's, it's a, they've got a commission that involves mainly private citizens to, to look at it, show them that it has the potential to be safe, and then show them that it works in a way that is safe, and then we'll give you a license. And by definition, if you get through that, You've now proven that a different way works, and now others can do that same thing. And then the next person or the next two people can come up with other ideas to get at the kinds of things we're about to talk about and find a solution that works for the people who are otherwise not going to get legal service. And that's really what, what Utah just stopped at that. Let's not wholesale try to get everybody to agree on a new set of rules. Just leave the rules kind of where they are but we'll let people come up with whole new models and then we'll approve them or not and we'll go from there. So the Utah experience yeah. poses this question to the legal profession. And as you've described it, I think the word sandbox is used because sandbox is a place where historically uh, we learn about life when we're very young and it's a way to experiment. Yeah. Uh, so the question comes down to this, given the failures, the broken aspect, the failures of the legal system, the lack of advice and representation in family law court, in the evictions, which you've mentioned only one side has a lawyer, the others do not. Should the legal profession 
do this experiment, not make a decisive change and try and say, all right, let's change everything, but simply set up a procedure in which there can be experiments to see if things can help meet this need. If they do, then we know it works. If they don't, we have had the, we have the regulatory authority to say no more. That's really the question the legal profession now faces, isn't it? Given the failures, are we willing to experiment? Right, and, and yes, and we should be. And one of, one of the reasons I think that is far and away the best answer is that over the years that people have tried to get changes in the rules, including here in California, where you and I both are today, um, they've been able, unable to do that. The, the, their lines get drawn. People who are presently practicing law and doing quite well at it become protective and, and, and there's no way around, I and mean, there's no sugarcoating this. That's what happens. They, they erected defense to changing the rules by con contending that if you permit investment, if you permit people who aren't licensed to practice law to participate, the, the people will be endangered. The, the protections that we, we, they so need to protect them against people who would take advantage of them will lead uh, to disaster. Therefore, we can't change the rules. And when, and when you get into political battles, we know, we know from lots of other settings other than, than this one, it's hard to get to a good outcome. So what has happened over the last decades when people have tried to reform the rules is we don't make progress. The sandbox goes around the debate about every little jot and tittle of the rules and says, just leave those alone. But if people can show us that there's a better way to do it that works and is safe, then we, we can permit it. To get there requires people who are involved in the legal system and, and citizens who are not in the legal system to step up and say, this is really important. This is not the way we intended America to work, that people don't have access to legal service, especially now that we've managed to create an America in which law is in your life pretty much every minute of every day. So, so we need to step up and say, we need something change, some, we need some change. And the sandbox is just an easy thing to get to because it's by definition safe. You can't do anything unless you've proved that your idea is safe. And if you don't, if you don't actually show that it's safe in practice, then you're not going to get a license. But we've been talking about what the problem is, which I think most people agree exists. We've been asking the question about why this model should not be used, the sandbox model. This has been in the news recently. The Daily Journal has covered this story extensively. But in terms of dealing with this issue, though those of you listening to this podcast can obtain one hour of MCLE credit for listening to the podcast through the Daily Journal. Let's take a break so you can hear how you can obtain that MCLA credit, and then we will return. The Daily Journal is proud to provide the weekly brief and other content as MCLE credit. Head to dailyjournal.com MCLE to see all the available content and more information on how to earn one hour of MCLE credit all from the comfort of your home or office. Read an article, listen to a podcast, get credit.
The Daily Journal doesn't just feature stories from our staff of reporters. We also rely on columns from attorneys, judicial officers, and legal experts like you to inform the legal community through our perspective coverage. If there's a column you would like to write or to get more information on writing for The Daily Journal, contact our associate legal editor, Elon Isaacs, at the email in the description of this episode. We're now back from our break after learning about the MCLA credit. We've been talking about the need for change in legal services, talking about the sandbox concept. So what is it now? What are some of the ideas? We're talking about investment in law firms. There also, of course, has been another issue raised by what Arizona has done and what Utah is doing, which is creating an entirely new class of legal professional called the legal paraprofessional. Uh, that also would be part of the sandbox attempt, but what is the legal paraprofessional and why is that now being extensively discussed as a possible solution? Well, to, to me, even putting a name on it um, starts to restrict the idea. What we need is to permit people who have adequate training and experience, or at least enough of one or the other, but adequate training and experience is normally what you would look for, and who we believe are trustworthy people to entrust, as you, as you would with any business, entrust someone to have a license to do any number of personal services. You have to be licensed to do all sorts of things, but you don't have to go to law school to, be, to do all sorts of things. Enough training, enough experience, reason to think they're, th they're trustworthy to, to do what it is they know enough to do. You don't need the finest lawyer in America to help you in a, in a modest, relatively routine dispute. You don't. You need someone who knows enough. A lot of the, of the legal service people need is simply to guide them as to the most fundamental of ideas about where the courthouse is and what it expects and, and things like that. So we need to recognize that. In fact, this, this, this is not just, these aren't just words. We need to see that you don't need lawyers to do all the things that relate to the law. You don't, and and expand the way we think about this so that we are we permit other people who are willing and qualified to help out in ways to do that while reserving for the things that do require lawyers the practice of law. If you if you ask somebody, or if you examine for yourself, so what is what is exactly the practice of law? Bearing in mind the way we've got it set up now, if you engage in, quote, the practice of law, close quote, without having a license, it's a crime. It's not just something you get fined for. You shouldn't do wag their finger at you. It's a crime. You know, people, I think, especially, you know, California, it's, it's a misdemeanor subject to a potential year in jail. So it, it certainly is a crime. Right. It's a crime. Right. So what is that? So if you, 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 if you take a look and in the statutes of any state, you'll see that, that it's a relatively vague notion. And that's so on purpose. Because it's, it's what exactly is the, the practice of law? When, when, when I was a practicing lawyer, lots of people worked with me. I had an assistant, initially a secretary, then she, and that job was called an assistant. There are all sorts of other people working in the law firm. They're all participating, but only some of us were lawyers. And, and and there's all this other work that can be done by people who are not lawyers. So and sometimes, if I can, pardon me, because you and I talked about this before the podcast, 
and analogize that we talked about analogy to the medical profession. Uh, and as I told you, I, uh, I needed a, as part of a, 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 a surgical procedure that was going to be done, uh, I needed to go in for a spinal tap a couple a week or so before. And I went in uh, to the office and the doctor, one of the leading surgeons in the area, in the country, if not the world, uh, said to me, I'm sorry, my, my nurse who regularly does this is out today. Uh, so I'm going to do it. And I turned to him and I said, when is the last time you did this? And when he told me, I said, you know, I think I'll wait for the nurse. Uh, the truth of the matter is that if you talk about particular legal proceedings, talk about a family law advice or even, even family law in court, my guess is that if you said, oh, we'll try and do this pro bono, so we're going to go to the, all the partners in the major law firms, the M&A partners and the IP litigators, and we're going to say tomorrow, show up at the family law court and advise someone on this issue, probably a person specifically trained to deal just in that area, like the medical procedure of spinal tap, mm -hmm. who couldn't do the surgery, who couldn't handle an IP trial, but the person specifically trained, in fact, might be more capable, though it's difficult for lawyers to hear it, uh, than the lawyer. I mean, we have a system that says that once you pass the bar exam, Legally, perhaps not ethically, but legally, you can defend the capital case. You can handle a, a public listing on, on Wall Street. This is simply not true. The experience in each area is what counts. So what we're dealing with here is how do we get effective representation in these areas where people are now not being represented? That's right. And you're putting your finger on something really, really important. The system we have now that people say, no, you can't tinker with this thing. The people's safety is at stake. No, no, no change, right? It works just like you said it. I'm going to repeat it for emphasis. If you pass the California bar exam, you are a lawyer. And there is no limit on what you can then do. What you just said, someone's on trial for murder. If they choose you, you can go represent them. You just got to be a lawyer yesterday. You can go to a, try a murder case. You can be hired to... To, to advise someone on a complicated merger. You can, there's no, no limit. You're a lawyer, it's on or it's off. That's protecting the public. As you say, to, for someone to get the service they need, you need some experience. I mean, that's the difference, difference between the medical professional who would do the spinal tap and the doctor, that, that, that other medical professional, whatever the title was, that person who does these knows what can go wrong, knows what goes right, how you do it, how to not make it incur more pain, whatever it is the issues are. They know that because they do it all the time. Why don't we, why aren't we open to the idea that in all of these different steps that are embedded in what is overall legal service, that we isolate those that don't require you to go to law school and let others do it? Others who have not spent <clears throat> as much money and time becoming in that career, one of the reasons they can live on a lower income than the lawyer is the lawyer had to invest all this time and money. Oh, interestingly enough, I just want to say, interestingly enough, you know, when you think about it, there are wide areas of what we traditionally have thought of as law practice that in effect have been taken over by non-lawyers. I mean, people don't speak of it bluntly, but the fact of the matter is the accounting firms through CPAs essentially give tax advice that we used to traditionally think of part of the practice of law. The truth of the matter is we know anecdotally, though people don't like to say it, that people engage in life insurance 
with no legal training probably give more advice on estate planning uh, than lawyers. So we do have these areas where non-lawyers with other training, where we recognize that in fact, they have special knowledge uh, to give what we've always thought of as legal advice. We simply don't talk about it, that's all. That's right, exactly right. And that's why I, I, I emphasize the vague definition of what is the practice of law, the thing you can't do. The life insurance salesman or, or the tax advisor cannot put up a shingle that says, Welcome to Howard Miller's law uh, office, because that would be violate these rules. But a lot of the questions that would have been asked to you as a lawyer can be asked of the tax advisor and, and the insurance salesperson without violating the law. And when you run a law practice, if, you're, if, if you really are an imaginative lawyer today, you assemble a team that has many people who are not licensed to practice law. They will do, for a lot of reasons, they'll do it at least as well as you will and maybe better. And that example with your spinal tap is not, uh, is not misleading. That, that's how it is. By the way, one of the other things about medicine, just while we're at this, and we, you and I talked about this before. So you use the expression non-lawyer. I've come to really think that's, I, I don't like that expression because it suggests better, worse, and so on. But in medical, you don't have that. You, you don't, is, as you and I talked about, you go to visit your general practitioner for a checkup, which I, my annual checkup every three, two or three years, I go for that. And I go in and I encounter several human beings before I talk to my doctor. And I don't call any of them non-doctors. They don't introduce themselves as non-doctors. They all have careers doing something that is in medical service. It's in the service of, of patients. Why can't we do that in legal? I think I find, I, again, I'm, I'm only going to interrupt you again because I think that is such an important point that I think has not been focused on. Our vocabulary is affecting how we think about that. Right. That's absolutely right. We have professionals in medical offices, in dental offices, all throughout the healthcare system that provide medical services, but we don't call them non-doctors. So why should we talk about allowing non-lawyers to do this? We're talking about creating a specific kind of specialty that is part of the legal system that meets a need. And I think that's a, a tremendously important point that I, I don't think has been made so succinctly and well before in terms of talking about this. Here's one other related idea. When I talk to leaders of large law firms and large corporate legal departments, settings in which they have lots of money to work with, lots of choices about how they deliver legal service to the corporation or to clients, one of the main recommendations I have for them is to re-examine your resource model. You do not need to have most of the work done by people who are licensed to practice laws. You can, because you can afford it. So you could do it that way. But you run up costs, you don't need to run up. And you actually, in the end, assign tasks to people who went to law school and are licensed, who, who will be bored by some of those things that other people will find appealing you know, in their experience and what their alternatives are, they're going to find that to be work they'd like to do and the lawyers won't. You'll be better off in every way. The careers you create for the people will be better because they'll, you'll match them better to the things they want to do. Your cost of doing business will go down. Your ability to deliver your fees for a lower price, that your chance to do that goes up. Your profitability will go up. Clients will be happier. Everybody wins. And, and part of it starts with 
rethinking your resource model. So my point is it's not just for um, serving people of moderate income. I mean, that's a big mistake some people make. We're, oh, we're going to um, come up with legal service that's second rate. No, we're not. We're going to unleash the power of innovation, thinking, technology. We haven't even touched on technology. Technology and information to, to create better solutions that work better for everybody. But those solutions, and that gets us back to investment in law firms, uh, those solutions uh, require invented technology. Technological development is capital intensive. Mm-hmm. And one of the problems with lawyers and partnerships, as I'm sure you're more aware of than I am, is that because partners leave and go to other law firms, the, the horizon for decision making and for returns, everyone thinks, well, why should I make this investment now, even if I were willing to? Uh, how do I know I'll be around when the returns come in? So it requires thinking of a different kind of structure to provide incentives for the investment for the technological advances. That's right. That's, and, and investment would do that. So if you permitted investment, and, and this, this is just one point in many, none of these by themselves are the solution. But if you permitted investment in a law firm, then the value of the law firm as it would go, it would go up over time because you have a bigger business and a more profitable business, you do all those profitable business, you do all those things, the, then the value of the stock that you own or the equity interest you own would go up and it would be, it's as simple as that. But we can talk about that in terms of a lot of the current discussion. For example, so much of the discussion around access to the legal profession is resolved around communities not being represented, people not being, having lawyers like them, whether we think of it as discriminatory, uh, which in many cases it is, or it's, it's impact. In minority communities, we don't have enough lawyers. But right now, the lawyer who goes to law school uh, from a minority community, and let's use that as an example, and who may have to borrow these enormous amounts to get through law school, goes out, and there's a huge need for those services, huge need for those services. But that lawyer can only function in one model. If he or she hangs up a shingle, he, hangs, he or she hangs up the shingle, and then she goes out and talks to the lawyer and tries to build a law practice, but can only finance the law practice out of the revenue that comes in. And what we know about businesses is revenue doesn't come in until you've put money in. But if those lawyers in minority communities had the ability to find investors who could provide the investment both for technology and for marketing, then not only would they succeed, I think that's really what you're saying, not only would they succeed, this is a problem of helping lawyers succeed, but the communities themselves would have the representation they need. And it's important, don't you think, to think of the investment not just in a large firm model or in the huge technological model, but how do we get representation in all communities based on lawyers who are now restricted and can't seek the investment that would permit them to succeed. Right. Absolutely right. So it is way more pressing to get legal service to people of, of moderate to lower means. And you are right that some communities are even more impacted than others. But it's really important to bear in mind that this affects everybody. Unless you are well-to-do, you have trouble getting legal service, the legal service you need. If you are well-to-do, you're still not happy because it's more expensive than you think it should be. It's slower than you think it should be. It's completely incomprehensible. 
not just because you didn't go to law school because it's opaque and it's not responsive to what you're solving for. Yeah. Other than that, it's great. So this is why this is why the major corporations in America have developed corporate legal departments that are larger than almost all any of the other law firms. It's very common to have a, a corporation with a thousand lawyers on the payroll. There's only one reasonable explanation for that. They're not getting what they want from the law firms and the law firms aren't delivering it in part because there are these gigantic barriers to entry. They're making a lot of money with what they, they do do. They're very good at what they do. There's lots of reasons they don't change. And then, so, but, but the real, the real uh, crisis here is for the people who can't afford it. It's bad enough for those who can, they have to build their own corporate legal departments, but it's, it's for the people who can't afford a lawyer, can't find a lawyer. And then if you want to be that lawyer, how do you, how do you market yourself? How do you build the business? And you're right. Startups need investors, right? If you get to any size, you need an investor to carry you through that time when you don't make any money. I know, you know, I've described this in other contexts that the law legal services have become a luxury good or a charitable good not an ordinary service that people afford. It's a luxury good that can be afforded by large companies or a few individuals. It's a charitable good by those who are lucky enough to get representation by legal service and other organizations. But to use a specific model, suppose someone wanted to start a business to invest significant money to provide technology and training for lawyers in minority communities. Someone said, you know, people are not getting served. I want to finance 100 lawyers throughout the state of California in predominantly minority communities. I want to train them, help them reach those communities. I want to give them marketing. I want to provide them with the systems and the technology. And I want, and because of this technology we're developing, they will be able to provide legal services at a cost people can afford that also makes them a living. So if you were an entrepreneur who had that vision today, in the state of California, you could not do it. Right. You have to go to Utah. You have to go to Utah. Or Arizona. Or Arizona, right? Or, or to the United Kingdom. New Zealand. I, I was down in New Zealand. Here's the story. I was down in New Zealand for the first time, right before the pandemic. And um, I was interviewing a man. I just had a brief idea of what his uh, role in the law firm was, but it was CEO. So... I said, well, how long have you been CEO? And he said, well, a couple of months. Oh, and how long have you been in the firm? A couple of months. I was hired as CEO. You can do that in New Zealand. He also was not a lawyer. You can do that in New Zealand because they don't have these pre prescriptive rules. They went out and hired someone who would be a real CEO. But in, in our model, you can't operate like a business. You have to operate like a professional association as though this were still two or three people with an office behind a white picket fence in some small town somewhere. And now these are complicated issues to deal with. Even, even if you are dealing with, <clears throat> the, with family law and, and more routine, and these issues, by the way, one of the things that it's a little- Family law is part of a routine set of legal issues. Well, yes and no. What, what I mean by this, the, the, the issues in family law are vital to the people involved, right? These are, these are very high stakes issues, but there, there's not a lot of money involved, so that doesn't warrant spending a lot of money to, to handle them. And then the other thing is 
as, as individualized as they are, everyone is different and every human being is different. In another way, once you've done a lot of them, you know how they go. And, and, and that's what I mean by that. And, and so they're more manageable than, you know, the Oracle versus Google Property. But you also, but you develop organizations, even when you think about the need, you, you can develop to provide a, a range of services. It's not, may not just be the less expensive uh, person providing the services, but can it be the psychological services, other services that help with children and other things. Right. You mentioned the CEO, you can hire a CEO, you just can't give the CEO any equity, you have to pay. And so you're restricted from from a range of talent of people. And, so right. uh, yeah, and you're and if you did that in a situation the, the, the one we have in the United States, it's going to be hard for that CEO to act as CEO because he's not on the same or she's not on the same level as the partners. They're not going to listen to him or her. Not going to happen. You know, in talking about this and the opposition to it, I'm, I'm just think of all the times that professions have opposed things. I always keep going back to the medical profession, organized medical professions, absolute opposition to Medicare. Uh, it was going to destroy ethics. It was going to bring in, going to force decision-making by outsiders. And of course, today, uh, if anyone suggested repealing and going back to that opposition, it's the medical profession that's organized around it that would change. And so what it, it, what it takes to do this change, which you've talked about, is, is leadership uh, and people who understand understand the need. We will take another break, I will say, because I want to continue this discussion. This has been in the news, but it's not the only thing in the news. The Daily Journal handles a great many other issues, reporting on current legal events as well. Let's take another break and hear about some of the other stories the Daily Journal is covering. The Weekly Brief is brought to you by The Daily Journal, California's largest legal newspaper. Here's some of our top stories from the week of April 26th. The Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has reinstated an Orange County doctor's indictment after finding a federal judge abused his discretion in dismissing it during the pandemic. U.S. District Judge Cormac J. Carney in the Central District erred in his reading of the federal statute when he dismissed the doctor's case under the ends of justice provision, according to the panel's 24-page order. The judges called it a, quote, strained reading of the Speedy Trial Act, end quote, which is unsupported by the statute's text or court precedent. The panel acknowledged the pandemic presents extraordinary circumstances and that the right to a speedy trial is one of the most important constitutional rights people have, but ultimately ruled the ends of justice doctrine provision only applies if conducting a jury trial is impossible and that Carney erred in dismissing the indictment with prejudice. The state Supreme Court and the state bar created a blue ribbon commission to examine the future of the bar exam. The 19-member group will consider whether to adopt a uniform bar exam to make it easier to become licensed in other states. The commission will also look at whether the bar exam is necessary to determine minimum competence or if the topics and legal skills in the current exam should be updated. The debate around the bar exam intensified last year, with both deans and students advocating for changes. The court lowered the minimum pass score and moved the exam online because of the pandemic in addition to launching a provisional licensure program that allowed some people to become attorneys under supervision without passing the bar exam. The commission's final report on its findings will be presented no later than January 31st of 2022. The popular and sometimes controversial online platform Reddit is facing accusations of failing to monitor content and remove child pornography. 
Sussman Godfrey partner Krista Packman is representing a Jane Doe plaintiff in a proposed class of women who say they were underage when they were depicted in videos and photos on the site. Known for its relative anonymity, Reddit does not require age verification when users post pornographic material. The site came under fire for hosting pages that insinuate child pornography, such as one titled Jailbait. A spokesperson for Reddit said in a statement, the company has a content policy that prohibits sexual content for minors or someone who appears to be a minor and enforces it with a combination of algorithms and human review. However, the lawsuit says the company is more likely to respond to claims of possible copyright infringement and threads flagged by users for child pornography have gone unaddressed. To read these stories and more, go to dailyjournal.com articles. We're back now from our break and hearing about the Daily Journal coverage. So we've talked about the use of equity allowing investors, and then we have some objections. One objection, for example, is confidentiality. People say, my goodness, if you bring in investors, won't there be a risk of confidentiality of, of, of the attorney-client relationship because you now have people in an ownership position who are not lawyers? Is that a reason to, to not do this? No. <laughs> There's, there, you, you put the, as it is now, there are all these people in law firms who have access to confidential information. Every personal assistant has access to confidential information. Everyone who runs the IT department has access to confidential information. Everyone in the fax room when faxes come across. Right, right. So no, you, you, we are, have it within our imaginations to erect standards in which the institutions that you're licensing to do what you're licensing them to do, no matter who the investors are, are obliged to protect the confidentiality of clients. They and are- I get back to the. I'm sorry, please go ahead. Well, and the idea that only lawyers will be sensitive to ethics or confidential, the limits on, on protecting the confidentiality of people's information is ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, we are, but what makes us unique among human beings? Well, I get back to talking about what, what's being done to meet this need for capital. You know, the water flows downhill and when capital is necessary, it will try and find a way. So for example, when people talk about confidentiality, my guess is, there is greater pressure on confidentiality with litigation finance uh, than there would be from passive equity investors. We have created all sorts of workarounds. The debt capital, which I've mentioned, where banks basically through loan covenants impose mandatory managerial restrictions on financial and employment ratios. Uh, and so we, we, the capital is being used. And in many ways, when you think about it, there is less of a risk in the area of confidentiality or even controlled by passive equity investors than there is by the people now providing capital in other forms. Yeah, I, I think this whole thing's a red herring. I do. I, I think it's just, it's just almost silly. Yes, there's. We all know that privacy is increasingly important as there's all this data, and it goes and it's out in the technology and 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 in the wrong hands, things can happen to you even if you're not famous or, or wealthy, right? We know that's a reality. We also know we can manage it. And the idea that ha- somehow someone having a stake in the enterprise who is not a licensed lawyer would change that uh, equation is just, I, I just think it's, it, it's silly. The, the, well, I just, I think it is. I mean, I, I, I think the concerns are whether or not 
the businesses will look out for the real interest. This is the, the one issue that I think we do need to address, that we don't create, a, we don't permit business enterprises that are going to cheat and, and otherwise not look after the interests of the people. But the idea that you have a corner on that simply by licensing people to practice law because they went to law school and passed an exam that does not test on whether you're going to be a good lawyer, test on whether you memorize certain principles, black letter law, is silly. You, 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 if you want people to be honest and really dedicated to the interests of their clients, then you have to manage for that, regulate for that, test for that. But, but it isn't just lawyers who you can count on to do that. One of the things is misapprehended by people who oppose changes is that lawyers are not motivated by their income. The best lawyers didn't seek to be lawyers to get rich or mainly about money, but they do care about money. That's why there's so much writing in the legal trades about profits per partner in all of the big law firms. It's a huge motivation in the law firms to make as much money as possible, but it doesn't prevent them from being ethical. It doesn't prevent them from deciding that a lawsuit that was going to pay a lot of money should be settled now because the client's better off settling than continuing to run up legal fees. What I want to talk about, because I think also it's not part adequate part of this discussion because of some of the opposition from the legal profession to this, is that in fact this can prom provide a flourishing of the legal profession, not only provide opportunities for the lawyers we've spoken about, the ones who are just graduating from law school, and finance their practices, but by making legal services more widely available through various mechanisms can actually help the legal profession to flourish. And that so many of the people who are opposing this for what they think are their self-interest really are not focusing on what the potential is for the overall growth of legal services, as well as providing justice. We're, we're doing this because people need to be represented. We want justice in our society but it functions through economic arrangements and the kind of economic arrangements we're now talking about could actually lead to a flourishing of the legal professions, especially for the young lawyers we're talking about, starting out in their practice, high debts, how do they get the wherewithal to really practice law and provide services? Right. And this is a point that John, John Lund, who was the president of the Utah State Bar when these the changes were made and is now head of of their uh, agency that oversees the sandbox, a point he always makes when these in these discussions. This is going to increase career opportunities, not go the other way. The people who generally oppose the changes are people who are doing just fine under the current rules and worry that it's going to be not fine. But that, that paradox we described before of all those people who can't find rewarding careers that those people are going to be better off in this uh, with changes. The other thing is that the nature of the careers will be more rewarding, even for those who, who are now getting them, because in this in a new model that permits a more sensible uh, balance of different kinds of people and equity as well as sweat equity, that we will take more advantage of 21st century tools and ideas so that the careers of the people who are doing the work will be more like what they were looking to do. So in fact, when we talk about uh, risk to the profession, we can use the existing large firm models, which you are 
more than familiar with. In fact, the adoption of technology, the changing of legal practice, the use of people for specialized areas, the providing of legal services, the largest firms in the United States and the world are not suffering because they've made these changes. They are providing better legal services with, in many cases, better financial results. Right, but they, they ha they're operating with a huge advantage. The, the leading law firms have been around for a long time. They're very well established. They have a clientele, they have a, a brand in the market and it's very difficult for competitors to create new enterprises to compete with them. So that's a big advantage. <clears throat> and they are able to make changes. They do make changes around the edges, but they don't make as many as they could. And, and if, if there were a freer market, fewer barriers, they would make changes faster. I have a daughter who just went through the process of choosing where to start her career. And she knew more than the average person because she'd grown up in a house where it was dinner table conversation, but still she did her due diligence and what she learned would be expected of her. And she did very well at a um, highly ranked law school um, was just not satisfactory to her. A lot of firms that I would have thought she should consider, she didn't want to work there because when she drilled down about what the career would be, it didn't sound very appealing. If firms made more changes, they'd be able to do a better job of matching up what they ask their new associates to do to what the ones they really want. The ones they would have hired 20 years ago to become the partners of the future are harder for them to hire today. And this is not so, just so, so in law. But the other thing about big law, big law does set the standards. They have the money, so they buy the technology, they do things. And then the benefit of that does go, end up showing up at the doorstep of other providers of legal service because the investment was underwritten by the customers uh, in the big law firms. But even the, the big law technological changes have been focused on their practices, which are often highly specialized, which may require specific uh, changes like, uh, you know, a customized uh, computer program of some kind for what they do or a customized chip. We don't know the full thing that can be developed, the full amount that could be developed if technology were turned loose through investment on providing large wide-scale legal services available in ordinary parts of their life to all people who need it. We simply, we know the potential is there. We know it can be done, be done. And that's why we get back to the sandbox. And so I think it's, it's the question that has been posed by this podcast and that you've posed, which is given that everyone knows the system is not meeting the needs, whether you use the word broken that you have or failed, the system is not meeting the needs of ordinary people and we exist. Legal profession exists for the sake of our clients. And so the question that all those working with have to ask, they don't have to go to the Arizona model, they look to Utah. Question is, it's the central question of what's now being discussed. Given the fact that everyone admits failure, is there any reason to not experiment to see if we can do better? Is there any answer to that question other than, of course, we should do it? Of course we should do it. There is no answer, no reasonable answer to not experimenting in a controlled environment. One of the things in this op-ed to which we responded <clears throat> was um, the suggestion we need a laboratory to experiment. That's what the sandbox is. It is a laboratory, a controlled environment, controlled by the state to see if another way will work. And we know through common sense, 
through observing other professions like medical, we know there are answers. We, this isn't as though we're trying to you know, come up with a cure for cancer. We know from watching others do similar things, there are other ways to do it. Ralph, Ralph Baxter, I want to thank you for taking the time to do this, but also because you led the way in big law to show how this has been done with great success and with admiration throughout the profession. And having finished that part of your career, what you've chosen to do is to take that knowledge and those values and bring them to widespread needs in legal services. And for that, you deserve enormous credit, our own admiration, and our thanks. Thanks so much for being, for helping us, for talking this through, and for being with us today. It was a great pleasure, Howard. Thank you for having me.